Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter number 3. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter number 3. We've been going through a series studying the Holy Scriptures and studying the doctrine of the Bible called Bibliology and to be able to study it in such a way that you yourselves can defend what you believe and explain why you believe it to someone else. And that we understand that this is important. Why? Because everything we believe about God, everything we believe about the Christian life, everything that we believe about Christ comes from God's Word. And so to us, it's important to understand where did the Bible come from? We explained in the last several messages dealing with the idea of inspiration. Who is the author of the Bible? God is the author of the Bible. That he used human penmen, but this book is a book that came from God. Now with it, we want to understand since God gave us this book, what does it tell us about this book? So to start off with, I want to show you a principle about God that we're going to apply to the Bible. Notice with me in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter number 3. Ecclesiastes in chapter number 3. And as Solomon is looking back, he makes an observation that is true about God. Ecclesiastes chapter number 3. Notice with me in verse 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. And if you don't mind marking pretty much the whole verse, if you haven't already marked this verse in your Bible, I encourage you to do so. But notice specifically, it says, Whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. And with this, we're going to study a doctrine of the Bible dealing with the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is without error, inerrancy of Scripture, for those who are spelling challenge, let me help, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. Inerrancy of the Word of God. The inerrancy of the Word of God. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. A God who is worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be served. And as we come to you, Lord, I'm just asking that you would give us grace, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding about the special and unique thing of your Bible and to understand the parts of it, to explain more about how we can trust your Bible and why we could trust your Bible and do it in such a way that we could explain it to someone else. Lord, I'm asking that you would just give me special wisdom from your, special, from your spirit, that you would do your own work. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to open up your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, if you don't mind, for my own sake of mind, I'm a teacher by nature. And we understand that I am preaching a message. The preaching carries the idea that there's passion that I'm bringing to a place of decision. But for my own edification, for my own help to make sure that I'm teaching you correctly, I'm going to teach this as a classroom. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to imagine you as students. I'm the teacher giving a lecture. And it's for the purpose that I don't get too much in a hurry. But I'm not trying to beat a time. We've already blown time. Don't worry about it. All right. Doesn't matter what Packer game's on or anything. But I want to teach you like I would students. So I'm going to try to make sure that I'm looking at your eyeballs and making sure the light bulb comes on and that the students are with me. And it's important to me because I want you to understand this idea of inerrancy because this is something that, to be honest, is a big fight. Why? Because most Christians do not believe in the inerrancy of the scripture. So because most Christians do not, therefore it is important for me to show you what the Bible has to say. And then you draw your own conclusions based off of the word of God. Now before I talk about the inerrancy of scripture, let's examine the principle that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter number Three. Now in Ecclesiastes 3.14, it is not dealing with the scriptures specifically, but it is giving a principle of God that we're going to apply to the scriptures. It says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14, it says this, I know that. So he's speaking, the author, the preacher is speaking of authority. He's speaking of a conclusion that is drawn based off of observation for testing. I know, I have concrete uh, uh, conviction. I am settled. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Now here it's talking about the works of God. Because God is a perfect God, guess what we could expect? His works to be perfect. And because they're perfect, they're going to be everlasting. Did you know that the only eternal thing that you are ever going to lay eyes on in this life is God's word? This is an eternal thing that you could see with your own eyes. And that it shall last forever. Notice as it goes on. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything shall be taken from it. This phrase carries the idea of the perfection of what God does. That everything that God doeth, it shall last forever. In addition, as a further defining, that the reason why it's going to last forever is because it is perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. That carries the idea of perfection. Do you know why God doesn't change? Because he's already perfect. Something that is perfect has no need of changing. God does not need updating. He does not need a newer model. He does not need a new download. He doesn't need a patch. He is perfect. And the things that he does, does not need an upgrade, doesn't need a redefinition. It is perfect. Nothing can be taken from it and nothing can be added to it. There is nothing that we could be added as now we apply it to the Bible. There's nothing we could add to the Bible to make it more perfect. There's nothing that we could add to the Bible to improve on it because it is currently already 
perfect. By the way, there was nothing we could take away from it because if we took something away from it, it would no longer be perfect. And so here we're making the application that what God doeth, it shall last forever. Why? Because it's perfect. Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can be uh, taken away from it. Notice this. And now it concludes it. And God doeth it. So the work that he does, in this case the Bible, that men should fear before him. Now we're going to jump to our application and get back to it. Why did God give us a perfect book? So that way we could fear or respond properly to him. Why? Because if this is God's word, it also carries God's authority. So this is when we come to inerrancy. Why is inerrancy, I'm jumping to the end. That doesn't mean I'm going to cut out the whole message, all right? You're not getting out sooner. But I'm letting you know where we're going. Why is inerrancy such a big fight? Because of the authority of God's word. If this comes from God and this Bible is perfect and without error, it carries his authority. And we need to respond to this word as if we were responding to God because it carries his authority. However, if this Bible is not perfect, if it has mistakes, if it's not true, if there's things in it, then it doesn't carry his authority. And therefore, we're not as responsible to obeying it. Why does God do everything perfect? So that way men can fear and respond properly to him because of what he does. And in this case, we're applying it to God's word. So with that, I'm telling you how we're going to apply it. We'll get to it in a second. Let's dive in and explain more about inerrancy. The first thing I want to cover is inerrancy defined. Inerrancy defined. Let's define inerrancy. Now inerrancy can be defined like this. It is without error. That's pretty simple. We believe the Bible is without error. Now the one thing about that definition is that it promotes a negative. What do you mean by that? Well, we're saying that the Bible is without error. That's more of a negative connotation to it, carrying the idea that we're looking for what's wrong. In fact, we could probably better define inerrancy is that the Bible simply tells the truth. The Bible tells the truth. That the Bible gives us what is true. With it, we have an understanding that it is without error because everything that it does is truth. It tells us the truth. Now with it, there are some things as we talk about inerrancy, we're defining it. Truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, different accounts of the same event as long as they don't contradict. Let's take those one by one. First of all, let's take approximations. If I use an approximation, am I telling the truth? Let me give an example. Let's say that I have a friend of mine who, um, because of his taxes, he owes $100,365. That is a specific amount. Am I truthful when I summarize and approximate that he owes about $100,000? Yes. An approximation is still declaring a truth. And there are times that our approximations are used. We do that as a normal course. If something is $6.99 at the store, can't we round it up to 7 and still be truthful? 
because we're using an approximation. Maybe we don't take the time to count. I looked up to the sky and there looks to be about 12 clouds in the sky. Because I make an approximation, am I still saying a truthful fact? Yes. And so even if something is not specific, an approximation does not mean that I'm telling a lie. It is still part of a truth. Does that make sense? So approximations is still a truth. And there are times that the Bible uses an approximations instead of being specific on every little thing. Can you imagine uh, if you were you win your life and you said, listen, I got to tell the truth in all things. No approximations. I need to know the actual inches on everything. So my house is, is 40 feet wide and 36 inches and a half. Well, you know, who wants to hear all that information? There's times that approximation in normal speech is accepted as truth and it should be. Therefore, we also apply that to the Bible. That the Bible is without error when it uses approximations because it is telling the truth. Make sense? Okay. Here's something else. Dealing with the idea of defined and we're trying to say things. The language of appearance. The language of appearance. Now, <laughs> there is something we use almost on a daily basis. How many of you have seen the sun rise? Now, how many of you know that the sun doesn't rise? Right? The earth revolves around the sun. And as it revolves around the sun, the earth itself is spinning. The sun is not moving. We are. But it gives the appearance to us from our perspective that the sun is rising. It rises in the east and sets in the west. That is the language of appearance. That from where I'm standing, this is what it appears to me. Am I saying a falsehood? Am I being inaccurate when I say that the sun is rising? No, not at all. Does it make sense? And so we have the language of appearance. That we're stating things from our perspective, that the way that we're seeing that, that does not make it inaccurate. That there are things that we see. We're telling a truth. For example, to, we're going to have a sunrise service. All can't show up to that service because it's not inaccurate. Or it's so inaccurate. It's wrong. Well, we would understand what we meant by the sunrise. Correct? The language of appearance. And there are those things in the Bible. For example, imagine if you wouldn't mind being from the first century A.D. Now, do we have here in the 21st century different things than they had in the first century? Now, can you imagine if you had never saw before television? And going back to the first century and trying to explain to all of those people there what you saw. That everybody was in this little box and they were moving and they weren't really there, but they were there and I saw it on the screen. Can you imagine trying to explain it to them? Or cell phones talking to the first century, that they saw, yeah, I'm talking to someone. Where are they are? They're across the world. Well, how are you talking to them? Well, I'm talking to them in this little box that I'm holding to my face. You could talk to someone around. How does it work? Well, I don't know, to be honest. Or, you know, invisible rays, they go up to space and then they're bounced down and they're, they connect to them. Well, how do they know which phone to connect? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, could you imagine trying to go back to explain to people that don't have the technology? Uh -huh. 
Well, there are times that God gives people a glimpse of the future and says, write it down. I don't know what that is. And so they do their best to try to describe it with a technology, with a terminology, with the understanding that they have then. That is the language of appearance. They're doing their best to describe something in the in the framework that they have. Does that make sense? Now, does that mean the things that they're saying is not without error? Or that it's full of errors? No. We would accept that as truth because it is the language of appearance. And that happens in the Bible. The people are trying to explain things the best that they can with the terminology, the understanding that they have. Does that make sense? And so that means doesn't mean that the Bible is full of errors. The Bible is truthful in those accounts where people are explaining things the best they could. Make sense? So again, we're not, <laughs> we're trying to define what we mean by inaccuracy and in, <clears throat> in errancies. <clears throat> Good. All right. How about this? With it, we also allow for free quotations. Free quotations. Now, let me give an example. Does the Bible say don't lie? Where's it found? Ah, uh, the Ten Commandments says thou shall not bear false witness. Am I inaccurate when I say don't lie? I am not. That's called a free quotation. And so am I accurate when I say the Bible says don't lie? Yes. I am being truthful in that account. Now, there are times where some people in the New Testament will quote the Old Testament and they will be summarizing. This is what the Bible said. Are they inaccurate? Not at all. They are saying, this is what the Bible says. I am summarizing. I'm giving a free quotation. If I'm telling you the Bible doesn't, the Bible says don't lie, I am accurate in that account. Does that make sense? That happens in the Bible from time to time. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is full of errors. That is something we allow inside of the truth. Does that make sense? And that happens. Again, I'm trying to define what we mean. Because to be honest, when people start picking about in inaccuracies, oftentimes it's because of something personal that they have. And they start swelling things up. Looking for little minuscule. Sure, you could take the... the uh, a magnifying glass and look and say, listen, the Bible is not accurate here because it didn't go to the exact inch. Well, if you start looking at that, you're missing the idea of it. The Bible is truthful in approximations. The Bible is truthful in the language of appearance. The Bible is truthful even with the idea of free quotations. Does that make sense? And then we have the, this idea of different accounts. The different accounts. Let me give an example. Let's say that one of my daughters went to London, England. And it's hot in London, England. And they're not used to, to the heat. And one of my daughters watches someone pass out. And she goes and says, man, it was so hot. I watched someone pass out. But then the newspaper reports that it was so hot that three people passed out. Is my daughter inaccurate by saying she saw a person pass out? No, as long as she did not say only one person passed out. Oh, well, that's getting specific where there's no wiggle room. And so from her perspective, she could say, I saw a person pass out and she's being truthful. And the newspaper reporting that three people passed out, it is still truthful. And by the way, those accounts do not conflict. 
right? Well, that happens sometimes within even the gospel records. That there's one time Jesus healed one blind guy. In a different account, it was two blind guys. Does the, do they contradict? Not at all. Because the one didn't say only one blind guy was healed. Does that make sense? It's placing emphasis on just that one. Does it make sense? Good. And so I'm trying to define our terms because we don't want to be silly about it. We want to define what we mean by it and what's allowable in truthful statements. That we believe the Bible is without error and we're trying to define it. The Bible is truthful and the Bible is truthful in approximations or estimates. The Bible is truthful when it's doing the language of appearance. The Bible is truthful when you have free quotations. The Bible is truthful in different accounts because People could be at different locations or they're looking at different things. Now, we could go in specific examples, but for the course of this, that's enough. We could go in different details later if you want specifically. But we're just trying to give an understanding what we're talking about inerrancy and defining our terms. Now, with that, let's see that inerrancy defended in Scripture. Does the Bible teach inerrancy? Now, let me pause here. There is no such thing in the Bible that says, the Bible is without error according to Second Opinions 4.3. Okay? You're not going to find that exact statement. We'll put that down. Now, sometimes people will say that we don't believe in inerrancy because we believe it is a new doctrine. And they go through a study called historical theology. Now, anything historical, I love. Historical theology basically is a branch of studying of scripture that studies the people's belief and when they started to define what they believed. Does that make sense? Now the reason why you have to define what you believed is because it was challenged. And if it wasn't challenged, there's no need to define our statements. Let me give an example. If you ask someone in the second century AD, do you believe the Bible's true? Their answer would be yes. You asked him in the 5th century, is the Bible true? Yes. If you asked him in the 1700s, is the Bible true? Yes. You ask a Christian in the 1800s, is the Bible true? They go, well. And so what happened is that people started to have a different view of the Bible. And because of the different view of the Bible, in order to defend what we believed, we had to start clarifying our statement. That we said we believe the Bible is inspired of God. Meaning, we came to a clear definition statement that we believe that this book was not written by man, but written by God. We found that we had to define our statement. And that worked for a while until people said, well, I believe the Bible is inspired, but there are parts that are not inspired. Or we believe that there are parts where this word here and this word here, uh, yeah, they're not the right words. God didn't really mean it that way. And so we found that we had to define that we believe in the verbal inspiration of God. That we had to believe that the words of God are inspired. Well, later on, people started going, well, you know, not everything's inspired. There's some parts of the Bible that's inspired, other parts that are not inspired. So we had to further define our position that we believed in the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Now because that is more of a recent statement, some people will say, listen, no one's ever stated that they believe that before, so that is a recent belief. Well, that's not accurate. 
What happened is that we had no need to come to a clear defined statement until the view of the Bible was challenged. Now we find that because the Bible's under attack, we have to define our terms. Does that make sense? Now, this, this idea here of inerrancy is the same thing. We had to define our terms because we believe the Bible was without error for centuries. It is not until the 1800s that the people started believing that there was mistakes and errors in the Bible. So, no wonder it is considered a recent doctrine, according to them, because we didn't have to define it until now. And so, more than what people say, we have to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible teach inerrancy? Does the Bible teach that the Bible is without mistake? Well, let's see for ourselves. And let's not depend on what man says or a preacher says. Let's see what the Bible says. Now, I can't go through all of them, but I can go through some. And we're going to go through a bunch of scriptures really quick, if you don't mind. Psalm 119. Let's start there. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse number 89. Psalm 119 and verse number 89. Notice what it says. Forever. Now, remember, we just talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 15, where it says that everything that God does, it shall be forever. Well, notice Psalm 119.89. Forever, because God's the one who did it. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. This is pretty specific. That God says, my word, it's settled forever. It's not going to change. Nothing be added to it. Nothing be put to it. That it is settled forever in heaven. Now, may I ask you a logical question? Does God have a different Bible in heaven than what we have here? No. And so if the Bible is settled forever in heaven, the implication, the application is that the Bible that we also have here is the same that he has and that it is forever settled because nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away. We draw the doctrine of inerrancy that the Bible is perfect without error. It is, tells us the truth. It is settled. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away from it. Well, let's look at some more. Let's look at the words of Christ, John chapter 24. And let's see this application of this, John, or Luke, Luke, gospel record of Luke 24, Luke 24. Um, actually, Luke 21, 33 is where I'm going. Luke 21, 33. I want to make sure I get to the right passage for you. Luke 21, 33. Notice what it says. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, notice again, we put emphasis on this before. Notice the words are plural. It's not the word as in the idea of it. It is the words as in specific words. The words of God. That here we see the Bible. It shall not pass away. Do you know that the Bible is going to last longer than heaven and earth? That God is going to remake heaven and make, remake earth. But the Bible is going to last. 
It's going to last forever. This again teaches the inerrancy of the scripture. It is without error that it shall last forever. Nothing be taken away. Nothing be added to it. Notice we go on John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So we saw what Jesus said there. Let's look and see what he says in John chapter 10. Again, we could trust Jesus' teaching. John chapter 10, notice with me in verse 35. John 10 in verse 35. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Now notice that last phrase. The scripture cannot be broken. Why? Because everything that God does, it shall last forever. Nothing can be taken away. And nothing can be added to it. That here, the scripture cannot be broken. Notice with me in the gospel record of Matthew chapter 5. Again, we could trust Jesus' words. And Jesus is telling us that the Bible is inerrant. It can't be broken. It's not going to fall apart. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. That God is going to keep his word. The word is without error. The inerrancy of scripture, the Bible tells us the truth. And it didn't get messed up. Notice how specific God meant this to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, notice with me in verse 18. Matthew 5 and 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The word jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like a little squiggly line. That's a jod or a yod. The tittle is a specific part of a letter. Let's say we had a capital P in English. And then you make a capital R. What's the difference between the capital P and the capital R? That little leg that kips out. That leg is called a tittle. It is that one line that changes one word, one letter to another letter. Now notice what the Bible says. That to the smallest letter, to the smallest part of the letter, shall not shall in no wise pass from the law. Now that's pretty accurate. God didn't just say, I'm going to keep my words. I'm going to keep the letters. Now that's pretty accurate, isn't it? Now God is talking about the inerrancy, that it is without error. That also means that God is going to keep his word. It's going to creep into preservation. But what we're talking about here is that God preserved his word. He kept his word. It is without error. The Bible we have is without error. Now, something else as we apply to it, turn with me to Psalm 138. And I want to show you something amazing. Psalm 138. Again, you guys are doing well. I'm treating this as a classroom. I'm seeing the light bulbs on. Haven't lost anybody yet. You guys are doing well. I want to be a help to you. And I want you to have this nailed down. Notice with me, if you don't mind, Psalm 138, and notice with me verse 2. Psalm 138 and verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Do you know the only thing that God has placed above his name is his word. Now how important is God's name to him? So much that he put a commandment in the Bible. That thou shalt not uh, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In fact he carries off that verse and says. That he will not hold them guiltless. Who take his name in vain. That's a pretty big deal. 
And so if God places his word above his name, don't you think God is going to take care of his word? Absolutely. He's going to keep it without error. That God is going to take care of his word. His word is without error because he holds his word above his name. That's a big deal. And so what I'm trying to do, and we could take you to more passages, but I'm trying to take you to the Bible so you could see that the Bible itself teaches inerrancy. It may not have a verse, the Bible is inerrant, but it gives us principles in the Bible that we see about the declarative statements about God's word, that God's word is inerrant. It is without error. God promised that it's not going to change. It's not going to be fall apart. Nothing be added. Nothing can be put to it, put away from it. That whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. That God knows what he's doing. Now with this, we're not going to turn to these passages, but inside of just using the gospel record of Matthew, Jesus Christ shows the Old Testament to be factual history. That Jesus Christ goes back and says, this event's true, this event's true. Once again, showing that the Bible is without error, even in some of these passages that some people say are not true. For example, did you know that Jesus believed in Adam and Eve? And not imaginary Adam and Eve or mythological, the actual people Adam and Eve. He speaks about that in Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 5. Matthew 19, 3 through 5. Jesus puts the accuracy, the factual historical accuracy of Adam and Eve. Matthew um, 19, 3 through 5. Did you know that Jesus believed in Noah's flood? The great flood that flooded the entire world? Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 24. 38 through 39, Matthew 34, or 24, Matthew 24, 38 through 39. Jesus makes reference of Noah's ark, Noah's flood, as historical, not as a story, but historical accuracy. That means the Bible's true when it deals with creation. The Bible is true when it deals with the flood. That Jesus gave his historical accuracy to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a historical event that Jesus made reference to. Matthew chapter 10 verse 15. Matthew 10 15. <coughs> Jesus Christ put forward historical accuracy to the story of Jonah and the whale. You mean some guy got swallowed by a whale? Yes, Jesus believed it and he taught it as fact. Matthew 12, 40. Uh, 40. Matthew 12, 40. Jonah and the well. Jesus said, this is true. Historical people found in Matthew. Isaiah 12, 40. Elijah 17, 11 through 13. Daniel 24, 15. Abel 23, 25. Zechariah uh, 23, 35. Abathar, Mark uh, 2, 6. David Matthew 22:45 Moses Jesus believed in Moses 8:4 uh, Abraham Isaac and Jacob Matthew 8:11 So Jesus is saying these people are historical accurate what that again tells us is that the old testament is without error it is true it tells us the truth when Jesus when the bible takes about talks about Noah's Ark. That was true. It wasn't a mythology. It wasn't a story. Jonah and the well. That was true. The Bible is true when it records that. That wasn't a fantasy in Aesop's fable. Each of these things Jesus says it is true. So now we come to an impasse. Either those stories are true or Jesus is a liar. See, we come to a big impasse here. Jesus teaches the historical accuracy 
of the Old Testament scriptures. The things that we read about in the Old Testament are truthful without error. Now, with that, there are three false views of inerrancy that we deal with all the time. Here are the three ones, and there's more, but there's three specifically that we have to deal with. First of all, that the people think that the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. Infallible, but not inerrant. The word infallible carries the idea that it can't fail. Some people believe that the Bible has power and, and can't fail, but it's not without mistakes. Meaning, what do they mean by that? That it gets across God's idea, but not exactly God's words. Let me give an example. The people tell, tell us that the Bible talks about hell, and when it speaks about hell, it really doesn't mean hell. There are people that teach that when Jesus talked about hell, what he really meant is the grave, and that when you die, you just get buried and put in the ground. Well, actually, when Jesus talked about hell, people would say, what's hell like? And he would say, come with me. And it would go to the edge of Jerusalem and point to a valley to the south that was a trash heap that was on fire and say, Gehenna, which, by the way, is the word that is translated into hell. Gehenna. Gehenna. What do I believe about hell? It's a place where the fire dieth not. Fire doesn't cease and the, and the worm dieth not. That's what hell's like. You know, Jesus was smart enough that if hell was the grave, he could have just went to a graveyard and say, that's hell. So we understand that the Bible is accurate in its words and truthful in the words that it uses. Now, this view will often change Bible doctrine into something else. People do that. They don't want to believe in a burning place called hell. So they go, no, 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 no. That word, I know it should have been there. It's actually supposed to be grave. Well, I think God enough never got writer's block and he could say, you know what? What I meant was this. He didn't say, you know, at the very beginning, I want to see something bright, something that was shine. I can't think of the word. Let me think of it. No, God just said, let there be light. God is smart enough to know what he means and means what he says. And so we have to deal with this idea that there are some people that believe that it's infallible but not inerrant. It is accurate in the ideas that it's portraying, but it doesn't use the correct words. Many people believe this, and this is something we have to battle with. Now, again, we answered this in Sunday school, but again, can a Christian, someone be a Christian and not believe in inerrancy? Yes. You could be saved and not believe the Bible is all the way true. However, you cannot be a biblicist, someone who believes and depends upon the Bible, if you don't believe in errancy. You, can, you will never be an effective student of the Bible if you don't believe that the Bible is accurate. You don't believe it's truthful. By the way, there's plenty of people who do. By the way, that shows up all the time. If I don't believe the Bible is true, then am I going to teach the Bible truthfully? No. I'm going to end up teaching my thoughts and my opinions. May I take a pause here? Most pastors do not believe the Bible is true. Now, they can't say that out loud because people will kick them out because one-fourth of Americans believe the Bible is true, whether inaccuracy and all other stuff. But most cemeteries, I mean seminaries, work hard at trying to cause uh, their students to have doubt that the Bible is true. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And that's something that we have to combat and deal with. Some people believe that inerrancy is only inerrant when it deals with salvation. That 
when it talks about spiritual things, the Bible is without error. But if you get into science, uh, there's no way. I mean, there's no way that God created the world in six little days. Don't you know that we have to listen to Darwin? Understand the science, friends! And so the Bible, God is stupid when it comes to science. He doesn't know anything about science. Oh, when it comes to history, it's not really history either. You know, there's all kinds of mistakes. The Bible's not true in history. By the way, the Bible proves itself accurate in science, accurate in history. We'll talk about that tonight. But that's something that we deal with. That in spiritual matters like salvation, the Bible is without error. But any other subject, it's full of holes. That is a common teaching. They believe that there's mistakes found throughout the Bible. May I see what the Bible has to say and refute to this? John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And again, you've been listening patient to me, class. And I hope that you're learning a lot and being encouraged by this. John chapter 5, if you don't mind. And let's see what Jesus has to say. Is the Bible accurate in history? Is the Bible accurate in science? What does Jesus have to say about this? Well, notice with me in John chapter 5 and starting at verse number 39. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think that you have eternal life, and they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. And I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses in whom you trust. For if you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings... By the way, who was the human penman of Genesis... Moses. If you're not going to believe Moses in his account of creation, of the flood, of the patriarchs, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot, of all those things, if you will not believe his writings, how shall you believe my words? What Jesus is doing is he is tying his word to the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament is not accurate, Jesus is also mistaken. Now, that's a big thing. Jesus didn't separate it and say, you know, some of the stuff in the Old Testament, you know, you could pick or choose, but just believe me. No, he tied his word to the Old Testament. And so there's no such thing as the Bible is only accurate or without error dealing with spiritual things. It is inerrant in all things or Jesus cannot be our savior. That's a big deal. A very big deal. Now, something else we have to deal with on the other side of the pendulum. These other ones we're talking about over here. As we swing to the other here, here's something else that we have to deal with. Even with people that we know. Some people believe that inerrancy is only in the King James Bible. And what they mean by this is that they believe that the King James Version corrects the original text. That the King James Bible is the only correct Bible and that it corrects the Greek and it corrects the Hebrew. Now the problem with that is that 
let me just explain it this way. This view comes from an idea that God has made the translation perfect. That what he did is that he did this and did this and did this and finally gave us a perfect translation. Well, the authorized version was not published until 1611. That view would state that people before 1611 did not have a perfect Bible. They had Bibles that had mistakes, things wrong with it. But there are people that believe this today, even around us, people that we may know that believe that only the authorized version is inerrant. That is a problem and that's something that we fight against. We believe that the Bible has been preserved by God throughout all generations and is without error. And that we, that, think about missions. If we believe that the authorized version is the only one without error, that means that all those lucky natives from all the different countries are going to have to be taught English in order to read a perfect Bible. Well, that's a big deal. We believe that God is able to keep inerrancy in all of the preserved text in the different translations, translate it from the correct text. And we'll talk more about that later. But again, this is something that we have to fight with. So you imagine we get things from both ends. I, I know a preacher who come up to me and he has a five point scale. And, uh, you know, number five is that you're right on board with the scriptures and that, that uh, one means you don't believe in the scriptures at all. And he puts me between a three and a four. Can you imagine that? You guys know me. I, and sometimes I'm only a three. I'm only midway believing the scriptures in three and four. I'm not. I, I, I love those people and I'm still trying to pray for them and whatnot. But you know what? We believe that God has preserved his word and that people have had the perfect word of God in all times. That God had promised it and that it's without error. Now again, we have to just understand that those fights go on. But we're going to stick with the Bible. That we believe the Bible is without error. Now, back to the application. What is the application? Well, remember that it talks about in Ecclesiastes 3.14. That everything that God doeth, that it shall last forever. Why? Because it's perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. Why? So God doeth it that men may fear that may have the proper response to him. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because if the Bible is wrong, how can you tell what's correct? And if the Bible is incorrect, then which parts do we obey? Now, this belief in errancy also is given for the purpose that they don't have to be under the authority of God's word. This is the whole fight of the authority. Why is the only reason why people would have a problem with the Bible? Because there's something in it they don't want to obey. And it's much easier to say, hey, you know what? I don't like this part of the scripture, so I don't have to obey it. You know, it comes down to the idea of authority. I don't want this authority. Sometimes people will challenge the Bible because they don't like a authority in their life. Husband, wife, government, pastor, whatever else. They don't like parent. They don't like some authority in their life. And because they don't like authority, they have to attack the one that has true authority by saying it's not accurate. It is not correct. The only reason to even doubt the validity of the scripture is not scientifically, not historically. It's because you don't want to obey it. Now, this is why it's important. Because when we believe in the inerrancy of God's word, by default, we also place ourselves under its authority because we recognize this is not a book given to us by man. It is a book given to us by God. And if this is God's word, it carries his authority and we need to obey his 
word. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three oh six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.